All right. Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Ricky. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if uh, you are new here, man, we are so glad you are here. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we study the Bible each and every Sunday, and you can get a Bible on the back table. That's our gift to you. Um, we have been in a series on the book of Revelation, uh, and we are nearing the end. And uh, it is quite the epic finish. Now, before we um, get into the Word, I just want to make note of the fact that over the next couple of weeks, there will be a number of questions you may have about Revelation that we will not have time to answer kind of all together. So there are, there's a list of resources on our church blog of different things we'd recommend. Uh, and next week, we will be actually getting into some of the different views of how people interpret Revelation. So uh, send in your questions to uh, Vince, uh, who is uh, in, in Europe. Um, so He'll get right back to you. No, I'm just kidding. If, if, if you have questions, next Sunday is a good Sunday to, to, to bring them. And uh, I think Lord will, Lord will give us a lot of clarity and unity as we look at those kinds of things. All right? Well, please turn in your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Now, uh, growing up, I had always heard about the epic three-part fantasy uh, almost sort of medieval wizards and knights and various things, a series called Lord of the Rings. And so that great series, I knew a couple things about. One, I love the Chronicles of Narnia books and C.S. Lewis, so he was friends with C.S. Lewis. I knew he was a Catholic author. I knew he was an Oxford professor. I knew that it was kind of defining a defining literary work in the 20th century even. So I, early teens, I was like, all right, this is it. I'm going to read it. I want to read Lord of the Rings. Even though the language is all old, I love this stuff. Let's do it. So I go to the library, and it's three volumes, but they only had the last volume. And so I remember looking at the library shelf in the downtown library and thinking like, well, should I wait? Should I? But, but, but I thought, well, I have no idea when the person's going to return the one book that they have to start the series, so I'll just take the last book and read it. Now, that was a mistake uh, in many ways because it was just names and people, and if you read the last volume of Lord of the Rings, it just starts off, and there's people, and there's horses, and there's stuff happening, and there's an army, and there's all kinds of stuff, and they all have names, they all have histories. I don't know any of that. And, and here's what I could gather, okay? The book opens with this epic conflict. There's, there's the land of Gondor, which is the land of man. It's fighting a desperate, hopeless fight against this powerful, overwhelming force. There are armies of evil orc creatures, powerful, magical, fallen, uh, almost like dragon-riding creatures uh, attacking them. There's an evil force behind them all, driving them forward. And this one city with many walls is, is trying to hold out against all of these forces. But, but not only is it dark and dangerous and they're outmatched, this city has been for, for years and years and years looking for its lost king. And it's, it's king that was, the, the ruler was supposed to be there uh, essentially fails the people. He goes. And so the, the people there are having to rally themselves and do the best they can. And even in the midst of the dark and danger, you think, man, this is going to be a sad book, right? You're, you're, you're thinking this is not going to go well. But at the risk of spoiling like a 70-year-old book that was then made into multiple Academy Award-winning movies, the city is saved, I'll spoil that for you. The city is saved. The cavalry, literally, the riders of Rohan, come with the dawn, and the king, the lost king, Aragorn, returns with an unstoppable force behind them after passing through the land of the dead. Now, a lot of parallels here with Tolkien. Reading the last book first, though, 
of that series did something unique. It meant that when I finally went and reread all the books in order, I knew something that the characters in the story did not know. I knew that in the end, evil is defeated. I knew that in the end, the king returned, and I knew that in the end, all of the suffering and loss and tribulation was worth it because good prevailed. That That is what Revelation 19 is for us. It is us skipping to the end of the story, skipping to the end where we see the return of the king and the last great battle. And and that end, that end was meant to give hope and encouragement to people in uh, the first century, the seven churches in Asia Minor. It was meant to put courage in their hearts. It was meant to call them to fight on despite the difficulty and tribulations they faced. And today it calls us to do the same thing. In a similar way, we're in the middle of our stories, as it were. We're the characters that don't know the next chapter or two chapters, but we do know, we will know after today, the last chapter. We know where it's going. So let's do this. Revelation chapter 19 many ways, the culmination of the conflict between evil and God himself comes to a head. Revelation 19, this is God's word. And Lord, even before we read this, Lord, I pray that you would, oh Lord, I pray that you would give us spiritual sight. Lord, let us see. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh... He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that flew directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Those, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on a horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Skip to chapter 20, verse 7, if you would. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This is God's word. Now, one of my favorite lines in Lord of the Rings in that particular battle I was describing is this line, that as they go into battle, as their king leads them, they sing this. It says this, then all the hosts of Rohan burst into song and they sang as they slew for the joy of battle was on them and the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. Now this, this, that, that line, they sang as they slew, is something that's been stuck in my mind all week as I've looked at Revelation chapter 19. See, this is what happens. This, the, the, the king that they're following at that point is a king that had been captured but, but, but was freed. And so this king that they're following into war is a, kind of restored to himself. And they follow him and with joy, they take up the fight. With joy and courage, they take up the fight and fight on. The simple call from the text, you could summarize like this. Take heart, Christian, and fight on as you behold the return of the king. That's what I think God wants to do for us today. Take heart, fight on as you behold the return of the king. Or you could summarize it in the words of Tolkien, sing as you slay, Christian, as you behold the king. Now, next week, we are going to cover some of the different ways that people interpret Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6, which is the thousand-year reign. And, and strangely enough, that often has become the, kind of the defining mark of what do you believe about Revelation? Are you premillennial, postmillennial? Um, uh, you know, Tom always joked that he was pan-millennial because he thought it would all pan out in the end, which is a terrible pastor-slash-dad joke uh, that I will repeat again next week um, for your benefit. But, but all kinds of people have discussions about that. Now, the reason, though, that I read these two complementary texts is that uh, regardless of the view you have, that there should be kind of the same effect on the Christian. So recently we were in Denver, in the Denver area, and I love the Denver area because you can see kind of the, the, the mountain range, the Rocky Mountains from the city, especially so if you're like driving up to Boulder or somewhere in the mountains, you get closer. Now, when you're back further, it almost looks like just one range of mountains out in the distance. But as you get closer, you start to realize like, oh, wait, these two mountains are much closer. That mountain's over there. And then that mountain is way, you know, miles and miles and miles away down the road. It's just huge and it juts out. Out from the landscape. In other words, you can head to the mountain range and not know exactly the, the relationship between the two peaks. And similarly, uh, in, in today's text, we have these two battles. And so some theologians would say, yep, they're, they're actually two different views of the same defining fight, in a sense. And so the mountain peaks are at the same level, same time. Others would say, no, 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 this happens. And then a thousand years later, this happens. And so they're set further back. 
Here's, here's what you need to know from, for today. We're going to talk about that next week. But for today, know this. Seeing the mountains in the distance should have the same effect. Both texts, same effect. Both texts, the effect is take heart, fight on, behold the return of the king. Now, the structure today is simple. Behold the battlefield, behold the king, behold the clash. So first, behold the battlefield. Now, this is where I'm going to back up and just make some observations really about the, the scope of Revelation and the theme of warfare in Revelation. Revelation is meant to, as its name implies, reveal, right? Literally, it tells you what the point of the book is, Revelation. Uh, it's meant to reveal. And as we've talked about, the symbols and things are not meant to like obscure the meaning so that you need like a national treasure decoder ring to somehow, you know, get in there and find, aha, I knew Kim Jong-un was in there. I knew it, you know. That, that's not the intent of the text. Instead, the, the images are actually meant to reveal. They're meant to actually clarify things. So what, what has been clarified and revealed to us so far? Well, what's been clear so far is that this life, this world, is a battlefield. Look at the players introduced. Revelation chapter 12, we saw Satan and, and this woman who represents the church and a child that she's going to have who is Jesus Christ, and, and the, Satan desires to, to gobble up, in a sense, the people of God, gobble up the, the promised Messiah, but he fails, right? And so the dragon rages and roars, and, and, and we find out the name of this dragon is Satan, the accuser. He was actually all the way back at the very beginning of the Bible, the serpent in the garden. If you've ever seen a serpent in and a dragon, you see, okay, they're actually the same. Is that, that's the same? Yes, giant serpent, just using deception. He's an angel whose pride turned him against God. He hates God. He hates people made in God's image. He hates the people of God. So then he sends some different figures onto the battlefield. First, the beast. Now, this is a symbolic or culminating figure representing government power or governing power opposed to the church, opposed to the cause of Christ. And then you have next to him the false prophet, a symbolic or culminating figure representing false teaching and false spirituality, meaning he's, he's the deceiver. He's got all these illusions. He's making you think you're following God, but, but really you're following the dragon in a sense. And then you also have this last figure of Babylon, as we just saw recently, this symbol of worldly culture opposed to Christ. It is worldly culture that upholds and offers the, desire, the, the, the idols of, of money and lust and power, right? It holds out those things and says, come, enjoy. And, 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 and in a sense, people who are led to their deaths like a siren song being sung to them. Now, I highlight this because... This text is the culmination of the theme of warfare in Revelation. Now, remember that this is originally written to Christians in Asia Minor, right? Seven churches in Asia Minor. And those Christians would have been harassed by government power. Uh, they would have been, uh, some of them are compromising and being seduced by false teaching. And so why in the world would Revelation be written to these Christians where the message essentially is, oh, it's far worse than you think? For the Christians who are saying, hey, Jesus, it's bad down here. Jesus' response in his revelation is, oh, it's, it's way worse than that. Meaning that the governing authority you're worried about, no, 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 actually, <laughs> it's way worse. There's an evil beast behind him. Or this false teaching that's infecting the church, it's not just some false teaching. It is the false prophet leading you away. Meaning you're caught on this battlefield. Wake up, look around. This is war. Sometimes we, we think about life as you know, 
I heard uh, somebody say one time that, that essentially because of the advent of movies and television, we all have a story and we're all the hero of our own story. And we're all telling ourselves a story about ourselves. And so some of us are, you know, maybe you're single and you're like, my life is a romantic comedy of hijinks and best friends and, you know, uh, misunderstandings. And, you know, it's, it's kind of adorable. And eventually there'll be the meet cute and I'll find the one and I'll be happy forever. Or you think, man, I, I'm a, this is, my life is a buddy comedy. Me and my buddy, we just get in all kinds of trouble. We have so much fun. Like, this is great. We hang out every weekend. Or you're, I think most probably common, a, a superhero, meaning that you've got some super special ability that nobody else around you sees, but someday you, you will be on, your power will be unlocked and everyone will cheer as you soar across the sky, whatever that means for you. Revelation comes to us and says, oh, uh, you're not in a romantic comedy. You're not in a buddy comedy. You're in a war. And in a sense, we, we must come awake to the reality that there is a battlefield, that we walk, the, 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 the floor we walk on is a battlefield, that the life we live is lived at war. And you're like, well, I don't really want to do that. Don't care. That's what's happening. But I want the romantic comedy. Great. See if you can sneak it in between getting shelled by artillery. Like that, you know, if you meet somebody, get married, great, good for you. We'll do a quick wedding. This is war. This is war. Listen, Christian, we must wake up and realize that our life is not just wake up, go to work, go to bed. I mean, wake up, go to work, pick up the kids, watch some Netflix, go to bed. Wake up again, go to work, pick up the kids, watch some Netflix, go to bed. If, if you think your life is that, you are missing it. This is a battlefield. And I think Revelation also calls us to remember that we must be careful to remember the battle we are fighting. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us that we do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly realms. That is what Revelation is. Our, our world right now is consumed by conflict. There is constant conflict and, and warfare of various kinds. It, it ranges from the mundane to the extreme, okay? It, there is a war going on right now in the parenting world where the free-range parents align themselves with child-led education. And over here, the structured parents have a schedule for their kids and a checklist for every single task, right? And the two lob Instagram posts back and forth, who will emerge victorious? We don't know. We'll wait till your kids grow up and see. Um, or moving into more serious waters, perhaps the, the vaccine versus the anti-vaccine crowd. Uh, how could you put something like that in your body? How could you not, right? This kind of feels like the defining struggle. Or to go further to the serious, Democrat versus Republican. This candidate versus that candidate. Or further, woke versus non-woke. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that these things are unimportant. I am saying, and I believe the text is saying, Revelation itself is saying, that the defining battle is the kingdom of Christ against the kingdom of the dragon in this world. That is the fight. And, and what will happen is we will get lost along the way and start fighting other battles, forgetting the defining battle. I was so grateful for a brother who, in between services, reminded me of 2 Timothy 2, where Paul uses the, the metaphor of the soldier, and he, Paul literally, literally tells Timothy, no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs but he remembers that he's obeying his commander. 
Meaning this, if you're at war and you're wandering off like looking for souvenirs or even back in the trench arguing politics, again, I'm not saying that's not important, but forgetting that you're on a battlefield. And that adds clarity and urgency to how we prioritize our lives and what we fight for. Listen, Jesus in Scripture, there's glorious hope. Jesus in Revelation is bringing his kingdom. He is gathering to himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he has given the church the task of going, therefore, and being his witnesses in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, that more might hear and more might be saved. And why is there even a gap between Jesus' ascension and his return? It is We don't know all the reasons in the providence of God, but we know one absolutely clear reason. He delays that more may be gathered to the kingdom of Christ, that the church, faithful its task, wages warfare through the proclamation of the gospel and display of it to those around them who are perishing. That is clarifying. Imagine you're at a 4th of July cookout tomorrow and you invite a neighbor over on a whim and he comes over and he brings some drinks and you start chatting and you realize, oh my gosh, the politician whose face is on my dartboard in the back of the house is his favorite person. And you start, you know, like, well, you know, let's talk more broadly. You know, what are your other interests? And he's just like, oh, communism. Love communism. Go to sleep in a communist blanket every night. You got the hammer and the sickle right there. I love it. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know. And you're like, well, why don't we just play some music? And he's like, great, I got an iPod. All that's in there is Nickelback. I love Nickelback. You're like, oh my gosh, okay. What do you do? I'm trying to bring this all the way down to the ground level. What do you do in that moment? Now, you can talk politics. That's not wrong. Maybe helpful to him. You could try to explain his, explain his musical selections. That may be helpful to him in some ways well. Oh, but brothers and sisters, it is so helpful to remember we are on a battlefield and the dragon is raging and desires to have this neighbor and he is being deceived across the board by the false prophet and you look at him and you see a prisoner of war that Christ can set free. That changes the way you think about life. First, remember, you're on the battlefield. Second, behold the battlefield. Second, behold the king. Now, Revelation is utterly honest about the power of the dark forces arrayed against the church. Through the church, you, 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 I mean, through the, the, the context of Revelation, you see almost arrayed on this side of the battlefield is the dragon behind it all, the beast raging, the false prophet deceiving, Babylon with her siren song, all the kings of the earth, it keeps saying, all the kings of the earth gathered, gathered. It says in Revelation 20, their number is like the sand of the sea. This is not a few folks. This is a massive, seemingly unstoppable army with illusion and power and and, 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 and tricks of every kind, and they come against the people of God. Who can stand against them? This is where Revelation 19 answers. This is why Revelation 19 gives such a long list of character attributes for the one who stands on the opposite battle line. Oh, Christian, as we look at this, oh, Father, may we behold the king. May we behold the king today. Verse 11 Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Now listen, that that is significant. When Caesar would conquer, he would come in 
on a white horse as Rome rejoiced around him. The white horse symbolizing victory. Why is Jesus riding a white horse of victory? Well, lest you forget, let me remind you of his biography. He, the word that created the world, became man, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, and he seemingly was defeated only, only to wrestle against death itself and come back from the dead. Only to, to, to pay for the sins of his people and emerge victorious on the third day from the grave. Do you see this white horse? You see a, a glimpse of, of, of him coming into Jerusalem and people crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He comes now. And he comes mounted not on a donkey, not in humility, but on a horse, on a war horse. This is the warrior unveiled, unbridled. It says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Look, the, 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 on this side, on this battle line, the, the beast and the dragon, they make all kinds of false promises, and they break every one of them. But over here, the faithful, the true comes to fulfill every single promise ever made in the Bible. Look, search the Bible for yourself and see, come show me, is there a promise of God that will not be kept in the end? Or he, will he not keep them all? Promises of salvation, promises of mercy, and yes, promises of justice, promises of judgment. He comes to keep every single one. Verse 12, his eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself, right? There is so much deception, smoke on the earth. There's fog of war, but the king's eyes burn with clear vision. And he sees through every deception, every illusion. He seems, sees everybody as they are. And on his head are many crowns. Now, it, Revelation is repeated again and again that, that all the crowns, you know, the, the, the beast has crowns, that the kings of the earth have crowns. There's all these crowns. They're all fighting over the crowns. I want this crown. I want this crown. I want that crown. And this person that wants this crown and this person really is in charge. And Jesus comes and on his head, on his head is every crown for every nation, every place, every people forever, for all time. Every single crown on his head. That's why prophetic literature, you're like, is that even possible? Yup. All of them. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. This is a fascinating phrase. I'll just say this about it. The, the beast's forces, the dragon's forces, always appear larger than they actually are. Right? They always seem large, but when you come up to them, they're actually quite small and limited. The rider on the white horse is the opposite. The closer you get to him, the larger he appears. The more you learn about him, the more glorious and magnificent and awe-inspiring he is, right? The depth of his nature and identity are deeper and more powerful than can be grasped or known. Verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Now, you may, as a good Christian like I did, go like, oh, great, a reference to redemption. You know, the lamb you know, being slain, it's, you know, the lamb's blood. Here, you know, that's so beautiful. Nope. This ain't his blood. 
is a common symbol in the ancient world. If someone's robe dipped in blood means the blood of his enemies. And I tell you what, man, when you are on the battlefield and you see a dude walking towards you covered in blood and it is not his own, you better watch out, okay? I mean, this, this, this guy's no joke. That's this figure. That's Jesus. A robe dipped in the blood of his enemies that he has already crushed. Coming to crush more. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. But he is the very embodiment of the revelation, character, and, and acts of the Lord. You remember in Revelation 4 and 5 where there was this, this scroll and who could, who could unseal the scroll? And we talked about how the scroll was the purposes of God for blessing and judgment. Remember that? Purposes of God for blessing and judgment. Who can open the scroll? Who can fulfill God's purposes for blessing and judgment? And, and they cried because no one in heaven and earth could be found who could unseal the scroll. And the lamb, the lion, comes and takes it and unrolls the scroll. That is this figure. He is the very word of God that the scroll that God decrees, he flies out into the universe and makes real. The word of God that created reality itself, time, space, oceans, mountains, galaxies, that word of God embodied in human form. That's who this is. At 14, the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Oh, we'll say more about this in a second, but just notice, he brings his army with him. And these are, just so you know, these aren't angels, these are the saints. <laughs> the saints ride to war. Lest you think, okay, well, saints just are going to go up there and gonna play a little harp, you know, like in a cartoon. Bring, bring, you know. And if, especially if you're a guy, you're like, oh, come on, man. Like, I don't know if I could do that. Don't worry. He calls his army to war. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Remember that, that word that, that, that opened reality will close reality. That word that made mountains can unmake mountains, right? His word, as soon as it is spoken, does what it says. That's where if you read Genesis 1, and God said, let there be light, and God said, let this happen, and God said, let that. That's the word. That's the weapon of the lamb itself. So if you look at this side of the battlefield with the beast and the dragon, you're like, oh my gosh, they have illusions. They have power. They have governments. Doesn't matter. The ground they stand on was made by the word of God, and he will unmake it in a moment. Fear not. Christian. And then this line, he will rule them with a rod of iron, right? There's so many layers of Old Testament prophecy on this, which we could unpack, but that rule them with a rod of iron is a specific reference to, to being essentially the, the ruler who's unquestioned, whose rule is not kind of brittle. He's not ruling them with the rod of plastic. You leave it in the sun too long, it starts to break. Oh no. No, no, this is a rod of iron. And he will this line is terrifying. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Sometimes you try to soften the Bible up where you're just like, well, it's not, you know, it's not like there's you know, bodies under there that he's smashing and a winepress. No, that's the image. Have you ever seen somebody, you know, that I Love Lucy episode where she's like trying to smash the grapes and the other person trying to smash the grapes and the, kind of the, the, the wine is flowing out or the grape juice is flowing out and they're, you know, it's funny and everyone's laughing and she's falling in the thing and you're like, ha, 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 this is not like that. 
This image is an Old Testament image that the wrath of God is like the enemies of God being put under his feet and smashed. That's what this man comes to do. In verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the culminating kind of summary statement of who this this figure is. He is the king over all kings. He is the Lord over all lords. There is not one square inch of all human existence over which he does not rule. There is not one square inch of all the spiritual realms that he does not own. There is no king like him. There is no king near him. There is no king on par with him. There is no king for miles and miles and miles below him. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Christian, I want you to say, I want you to feel this. I want you to say, that's my king. That is my king. Behold him there. Now listen, listen. I know I've mentioned this before, but sometimes we can have a lopsided understanding of Jesus. Sometimes we, we see, especially in the American church, the, the gentleness of Jesus to the exclusion of his ferocity. Is Jesus gentle? Yes, amen. Thank God that he is. Gentle and lowly in spirit. We can come to him. But he is also breathtakingly fierce. Right? Or, or we see Jesus with kids around him, right? The image in Sunday school, you know, we, I grew up with on the felt board is there's Jesus and there's all the kids around him. And he's just like a, you know, like a, like a Mr. Rogers figure, you know. But the problem is if that's the only picture you have in your mind of Jesus, you're like, man, there's some situations in life and in eternity that you don't need Mr. Rogers, Right? On this warfare battlefield with the beast and the dragon and, and all of his forces, you don't need Mr. Rogers in a cardigan. You need the rider on the white horse whose garments are stained with the blood of his enemies, riding at the head of, a, of countless riders that he has redeemed, and he rides to war, to ruin, and to war. Right? This is, this is the balance we need in our view of Jesus. And look, the reason I'm saying this is, is, is this. Uh, statistically, more women than men attend church. And statistically across America, Mother's Day is one of the highest attended church Sundays and Father's Day one of the lowest. What does that tell you? It tells you that on her day, mom wants everyone to go to church and on dad's day, he's like, I'm going fishing or whatever, you know. I don't know where you fish around here. You're going to shoot stuff in the desert. And yeah, I know you guys. Uh, Why is that? Well, I don't know all of that, but perhaps part of it is this. I think many men do not see in Jesus a king they respect and who is worthy of their allegiance. And brothers, I think there is something in the heart of every man that longs for a king to follow and a war to fight. Some of you guys in the armed forces are like, yup. Yeah, like, even if you're not, there is something that, that you give a boy a stick in a backyard and give him like a few hours, he's going to be fighting stuff with the stick. Usually, not every kid, but you know, it'll be like often. And boys then become men who want to fight. But, the, but, but where they go with that desire makes all the difference. Do they funnel it into video games trying to rank up in Halo or League of Legends? Do they 
want to bench more than all of their buddies? Do they want to cheer a football team, act like they want a game that other, they paid to watch other people win? Um, now, these things are not necessarily bad. You know, I'm, I'm not saying that these things are bad, but brothers, brothers, hear me, hear me. Hear the word of the Lord. You were made for more. You were made for war. You were made for a king. You were made to follow him into battle. You were made to be part of the purposes of God in your generation. That's what this is a call to. Listen, my, one of my favorite uh, sections of, of the battle in the Lord of the Rings that I think shows us the appropriate response of when we see the king, what happens in our hearts, it says this. So this one warrior sees this lost king coming in the distance, and it says this. Then wonder took him and a great joy, and he cast his sword up in the sunlight and sang as he caught it. And all eyes followed his gaze, and behold, upon the foremost ship, a great standard broke the flag of the king. Thus came Aragorn, son of Arathorn, out of the paths of the dead, borne upon a wind, and the mirth of the riders was a torrent of laughter and flashing of swords, and the joy and wonder of the city was a music of trumpets and ringing bells. But the hosts of evil were seized with bewilderment. And a black dread fell on them, knowing the tides of fate had turned against them, and their doom was at hand. When we behold the king, it does something in our hearts. We, I love the, 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 the character, Elmer, just raises his sword as soon as he sees the king. And he points, and the whole company looks and sings and rejoices. That's what we're meant to do. What's meant to happen in our hearts? All right, verse, I'm in at verse three. Section three, behold the victory of the king. This will be brief uh, because it is, well, you, you may be expecting a powerful blow-by-blow -blow battle. If you've ever read an, an epic like Beowulf, there's page after page after page of him getting ready to fight and they get ready to fight and then he's fighting and then he's fighting and, he's fighting, and he stops and then he fights another person and they're stopping and then there's just page after page of battle. About, he's struggling, he's straining, who can win? Grendel or Beowulf back and forth and back and forth and here you will find none of that. Instead, we read this of the battle with the false prophet. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. You're like, okay, here we go. The lines are running at each other. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. It's almost as though the, the writer, the author of Revelation, John, is just like, yeah, it was no fight at all. I'm just gonna skip to the end. The beast, so powerful, all the governments of the world in his hand, now powerless. Now chained up. The false prophet deceiving everyone. Everyone's looking at him and following him. All of a sudden exposed. Chained up. Similarly, you'll see in the battle of Armageddon with the dragon, verse 9 of uh, chapter 20, then they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And you're like, oh man, oh man, here we go. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I love this picture because it's almost as though the dragon you know, has the city surrounded and he's preparing to roar and unleash this fire onto the city and as he pulls back to roar, he gets burned up instead. Right? Fire does come down, but it ain't out of his mouth. It's aimed right at him. Look, this is no long drawn out struggle. This is where the worldview of Christianity is utterly different than sort of the yin and yang of Eastern religion or the light and dark side of the force. 
right? The, the two are not evenly matched. It's not as though the yin and yang go dark and light are always fighting each other, and this is, you know, blah, 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 like this, and it's just kind of cyclical, and they keep fighting, and hopefully good can come out on top. Or, and, and often you find in Star Wars, they'll be like, oh, this one is going to bring balance. He wants to bring balance to the force. Uh-uh. Jesus ain't bringing balance to nothing. He's going to wipe out evil. He's going to destroy the darkness. That's where we're going. We're not like, oh, who's going to win? We need balance. Nope. We ride to war. We ride to win. We ride with the king. And we see that, that in this ending, the, bat, the dragon and beast and prophet are all cast into what Revelation calls the lake of fire. Now, I'm going to talk more about that next week. But here, I want you to just notice something absolutely key, the relationship between the devil and hell. The devil is not running around happily with a pitchfork. It's not as though devil is like kind of like a you know, corrections officer. God sends people down to jail, and he pokes them with his pitchfork and laughs, ha, 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 you know, and he makes them listen to Nickelback or, you know, whatever. I'm just kidding. I'm hating on Nickelback. It's fine. Uh, he's, you know, he's poking them, and you're like, oh, yeah, and you have people say things like, oh, I hope they serve beer in hell, you know, and the devil will be down there drinking with us. No! Look, man, this is the reality. The devil is utterly destroyed, and while alive, that detail is terrifying, while alive, in a sense, they're cast in the lake of fire forever. Oh, man. This is an utter defeat for the forces of evil. Now then, okay, summary. We've seen three things. We've seen the battlefield. We've seen the king. We've seen the clash. Now what are we meant to do? Well, I want, I want to reiterate the call of the passage. The passage call, I think, is to take heart and fight on as you behold the return of the king. The interesting thing about J.R. Tolkien, Tolkien fought in World War I. Despite being kind of a weak dude, I mean, you're probably thinking, you look at his picture, he's an Oxford professor. Is that going to be super helpful on the battlefield? He wasn't. But he was there. He was faithful. Um, and sadly, in World War I, his almost entire company was destroyed. He was one of the few survivors. He, 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 was, he caught trench sickness. Um, he was mentally and physically broken. He spent the rest of the war trying to get beyond it, was never the same. And, and you read literature at the time, the Great War, as it was called, broke, in a sense, the psyche of everyone in Europe. Everybody was like, things are just going to get better and better and better, and humanity is going to get better and better and better, and all their technology and all their goodness, instead of being used for good, was used for destruction. Nobody could deal with that. And then Tolkien was still alive for World War II. So he got to live through that one, live through another one, and while he was going through these things, he wrote what later became Lord of the Rings. And here's what I want to say. The Lord of the Rings is utterly honest about the darkness and evil in the world around us. It is a dark book. So if you're like, oh, I'm going to start reading Lord of the Rings after this with my seven-year-old, maybe not. Maybe, but maybe not. But there is a theme in Tolkien again and again and again, that as the defenders fight heroically and are about to lose, the sun rises, the cavalry comes, and they are saved. Happens in the second book. Happens here again in the third book. At the last moment, the sun rises. Literally, the king comes with the dawn and saves everyone. And Tolkien's worldview was ultimately optimistic. Why? Well, I don't know exactly why, but I think I know. I think it's because he knew the end of the story of the Bible. He knew that despite all he'd seen in World War I and World War II, and, and he knew that war would continue until the end, he believed that the king would return. What does that do for us? It does two things. First, it calls us to take heart. 
Look, Jesus said in this life we would have tribulation. Look, I, I know folks in the church that have suffered are suffering. Oh, brother, sister, if I could, let me just lift your chin today. I know the suffering is real. I'm not saying it's not, but lift your eyes and look up and see the king. See that in the end, the king does return. See that in the end, every promise is kept. See that in the end, it is all for the glory of God and the good of his people. Look, the, the king will come with the dawn. And what would change if, if God appeared to you in a vision this afternoon and said, hey, I'm coming back in a week? How would you approach that week? Well, I think you'd probably be singing the whole week, right? Be like, bah, 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 bah. you know, you get into traffic and there's an accident on the freeway and you're like, no problem. Good morning, everybody. How are you? You know, Frank, the annoying office guy who's always wanting to talk to you. You're, you're just like, oh, great. You're all of a sudden you're like, hey, Frank, listen, I actually need to get lunch with you. And he's like, really? Oh, yeah, actually, because something important coming. I can't tell you what it is, but it's important. I'd love to talk to you about it. Okay, sounds great. Like, in other words, it would change the way you live. Even your suffering, you'd get up with chronic pain, which I've experienced. And you think, man, am I going to make it through another day? It changes the way you think about that day, knowing the king is on his way and will come soon. Take heart, Christian. Second, fight on. Fight on. What does fighting on look like in Scripture? Let me just summarize it this way. Fighting on first means not giving up in suffering. 2 Timothy 2 also says, suffer as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. One of the most countercultural witnesses we as Christians have in our culture is suffering well. The world has no answers or hope when it comes to cancer or loss or disability or betrayal. The world, all it offers is saying, well, define yourself as a victim. Define yourself as a sufferer. Define yourself as, a, as someone who's lost someone. Define yourself as bereaved. Define yourself as hopeless. And, and then maybe try to alleviate your suffering with this or with that or with this or with that. This, this can make it a little better. This can make it a little better. But the world has no ultimate solution for hope in the midst of suffering. But this is what Revelation offers us. It offers, to, to, to those who are suffering, it offers a glimpse of a future without suffering, which the world cannot do. It offers a glimpse of a, a future where righteousness and justice prevail, not evil. Look, if you are suffering, I do not want in any way to demean your suffering, but, but look to Christ. Look to 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where it says that, that all of our suffering is for ultimately our good and for, for the the eternal glory of God, and this suffering is working in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. Fight on. Second, fighting on means not giving up in the fight to uh, defeat our flesh and sin. When we feel the siren song of Babylon, when the false prophet desires to draw us in and destroy us and deceive us, right, we, we fight against those things. We fight against even our flesh. We, we, we listen to 1 John and, and where it says, do not love the world or the things in the world, right? We, we, we keep fighting against lust. We keep fighting against sinful anger, keep fighting against the world's values of materialism and consumerism. Let me just give you a warning here, Christian, and, and an encouragement to fight on. Uh, the world will, will find an excuse and the false prophet will give you an excuse for anything you want to do. You can find someone, probably wearing the name tag of Christian, who tells you it's okay. 
things get too hard in your marriage and you want to just bolt. I'm not, I'm not demeaning people who are having hard times in marriages, but, but what I'm saying is you can go and find a Bible teacher who will tell you, listen, you got to listen to your heart. Do, do your own thing. Get uh, toxic people out of your life. Instead of walking through the hard process of trying to seek reconciliation, working on it, or, or take reconciliation, for example, right? The world will be like, yeah, just cut the toxic people out of your life. If you have a friend that wrongs you, keep a record of wrongs, bring that up at every opportunity, make sure they know that they're in debt to you, and the Bible says, no, 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 that's not how you handle things, right? This is the, the pull, and it doesn't feel like, well, that's not fighting. No, it is. That's warfare. That's the level we fight on. We fight to ground our hearts and minds in the word of God and to see clearly through his word and to fight the siren song of the world around us, fight the false teaching around us, uh, hold fast against opposition against us, and last, fighting on looks like not giving up in the task of telling others about Jesus. Again, we do not know all the reasons Christ delays from his ascension to his return. We know one reason, very clearly, it is that the choir of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and people be gathered to him. He delays that more might be gathered in. Listen, this redefines the way you see your life. America will tell you that your life is about finding a, a romantic partner that you enjoy, uh, having enough wealth to buy whatever you want so that you can go on decent vacations and having enough comfort and enough things to insulate you from the hurts and hardships of the world. And that is what America tells you life is. That's life. And the Christian looks at that and says no. The Christian looks at that and, and their view of that last day and the rider on the white horse transforms everything. It transforms our hearts and minds where we say, okay, great, this is war. Every day, I'm gonna have to wake up and fight against my sin. Every day, I'm gonna have to fight to renew my mind. Every day, I'm gonna have to see who's struggling in the church and pull them back to safety from the front lines. Every day, I need to see what POWs are out there that Jesus is calling to himself that are captured by the dragon, captured by the false teacher, that I can bring the hope of the gospel to, that Jesus might set yet one more prisoner just like me free. And you look at your budget, and all of a sudden, it's not like, great, how much do we have for vacation? It's what can we do to advance the kingdom of God in our generation? You look at your kids, and not just like, well, I hope they have good interest and win their softball league. No. When I help them understand who Jesus is and, let them help, and help them learn to follow Jesus, right? That's the war we're fighting. All right, we got to end. I can talk about this all day. Line we skipped in verse 14 is our entryway into communion. Verse 14 says this, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I want you to see the two battle lines. See the dragon, see his people, see all those arrayed here, and then see on this side Christ and the question that hangs over Revelation 19, how can any of us be on the side of Christ? Because here's the reality, any of us who have sinned, any of us who have fallen, any of us who have, have, in a sense, soiled our garments, we're all over here. We've all, with our actions or words at one time or another, and many times, repeatedly, said, we reject your rule, God. We're going to do our own thing. So how can it be that anybody is on the side of Christ? Oh, church, remember the lamb. He is a warrior, but he is also a lamb. He gave himself as an offering for the sin of his people that they might be washed and cleansed and justified and purified. And here is the amazing thing. Anyone at any time can go from this side to this side by confessing they believe who Jesus is 
and repenting of their sins. Look, if you're here today, we're about to take communion, that you're not a Christian, I'd ask you to refrain from that. But this is an invitation to you. This is an invitation. It's not as though you gotta go do a thousand good deeds and come back and see us at the church. We'll check your card and then let you into the sight of the Lamb. Today, right now, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Please take the communion, Christians. Um, you're welcome to take communion, even if you're not from our church. We'd love all those who follow Jesus to take it with us. And as we take this communion, let's remember. Let's remember how we came to be in the sight of the Lamb, how we came to be alongside the rider with, of the white horse. Is <sighs> Jesus. Lord, as we take the bread in our hands, we remember your body broken for us. May we take this in remembrance of what you've done for us. Please take the bread, Christian. And now please take the cup. And Father, we remember your son's blood shed for us. Remember that in his blood, our garments are washed white as snow. In his blood, regardless of the sins we have committed 10 years ago or this week, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. Oh, Lord, thank you. Please take the cup. Remember Christ's blood shed for you. And church, if you would, let's stand now. And then all the host burst into song. And they sang as they slew. For the joy of battle was on them. And the sound of their singing that was fair and terrible came even to the city. Oh, church, may we remember that the dominant note of Christianity is not sorrow but victory. The dominant note of our faith is not loss but gain. The dominant note is not the struggle but the victory in Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's sing.